We give you money for nothing because the show is free. And the Philadelphia Eagles got the one and only Golden Tate for nothing. Nothing. A masterstroke by Howie Roseman. Howie Roseman personifies the NFL status quo. The rich teams stay rich and the poor teams stay poor. And by rich, I mean talent rich. And by poor, I mean talent poor. There's a reason why the Patriots and the Steelers are always in the AFC playoffs. It's not just the quarterback play. The most important entity, the driver of winning in most sports franchises is the front office. The front office, the front office, the front office. If you want to give credit for building a championship to any individual outside the best players on the field, you give it to the general manager, not the coach. And Howie Roseman is one of the best. Why? Because he won the trade deadline. At least he won the wide receiver sweepstakes at the deadline. Because there were three name brand wide receivers who changed teams in the days leading up to the trade deadline. Amari Cooper, Demarius Thomas, and yes, Golden Tate. And I would rank those deals in that order. The Amari Cooper deal being the worst, followed closely by the Demarius Thomas deal, and then a wide gap to the clear winner, the Golden Tate deal by Howie Roseman. And we shouldn't be surprised. This is what Howie Roseman does. He obtains players at great value and gets value in return whenever he executes a deal. Golden Tate is only owed $7 million this year, and Philadelphia has to pay him a fraction of that for the remainder of the season. And then he's a free agent. And if they choose not to extend him, which they likely won't, the Philadelphia Eagles are actually incentivized to not extend Golden Tate because if and when he signs with another team, Philadelphia will receive a 2020 compensatory pick that may be as high as a third-round draft pick. (laughs) So they give up a third-rounder in 2019 to get a third-rounder in 2020 and Golden Tate to make their Super Bowl run. And I know, oh, they're 4-4. Four and four. Yeah, they've been unlucky. Have you looked at the point differential? The Philadelphia Eagles are by far and away the best 500 team. They've been unlucky. And instead of wallowing in their misfortune, Howie Roseman did something about it. He stood up and said, we're going to get better. I'm going to try to tilt the odds further in our favor in the second half because the schedule gets easier for the Philadelphia Eagles in the second half. They are likely going to make the playoffs. They're a better team than Washington. They're a better team than Dallas. They're a better team, certainly, than the New York Giants. So I expect the Philadelphia Eagles to represent the NFC East in the playoffs. But Howie Roseman did not just sit back and hope for the best. He took action. So many NFL general managers are men of inaction. Most of their decisions are made out of fear, so much so that they are paralyzed by risk aversion. Not so with Howie Roseman. So essentially, they got a free Golden Tate rental for the rest of the year because Nelson Aguilar is not a starting wide receiver in the league. He's a rotational receiver at best. And this is what the great franchises do. They self-scout realistically. They said, Nelson Aguilar is not getting the job done. We don't have enough wide receiver depth. How do we upgrade our starting wide receivers and in the process improve our wide receiver depth? We go out and acquire an elite playmaker like Golden Tate. Golden Tate was the best receiver on the market. You could argue Deshaun Jackson because he stretches the field. He makes other people better in a way that Golden Tate does not. So of the wide receivers that were available 
because Deshaun Jackson was available. No one was willing to offer Tampa the price they were asking for for Deshaun Jackson. But that doesn't mean Deshaun Jackson wasn't available. Deshaun Jackson was very much available. And he is one of the best wide receivers in the league in real football. He's not one of the best fantasy football wide receivers because of the low target share. But he stretches the field and gives the other receivers extra room to operate. That has incredible real-life value. It's why the John Brown signing by Baltimore was so important. So if I were out shopping for a wide receiver at the deadline, I would have been targeting Deshaun Jackson and Golden Tate. Golden Tate, more of a target magnet, yak monster. Deshaun Jackson, an elite field stretcher. Both have incredible value. Significantly more value than what Demarius Thomas and Amari Cooper offer. But I heard, oh no, the, the Cowboys won that. Oh yeah, the Cowboys acquisition of Amari Cooper was the best wide receiver acquisition. Oh yes, oh yeah, oh yeah, wow. Amari Cooper's only 24 years old. He's young. Those other wide receivers that are in their 30s, they're on the back half of their career, a couple years left. Eh, meh, eh, meh. Amari Cooper, he's a potential building block of this offense. Except he hasn't been playing that way. If anything, Amari Cooper's youth forced Jerry Jones to overpay him and will likely entice the next general manager to offer him an extension to overpay him as well. Because Amari Cooper is on the last year of his contract, right? Rookie contracts are great, especially when they're rookies drafted outside the first round. So you get those players at value. But quarterbacks can be drafted in the first round and they'll be incredible value. Look at Jared Goff. Jared Goff is a strategic advantage for the LA Rams. And they, like Philadelphia, are going all in this year, acquiring quality players in the offseason and at the trade deadline with Dante Fowler. But is Amari Cooper a quality player? I have real questions about that. We know definitively Golden Tate is good. We do not know that about Amari Cooper. We don't know what he is. Sure, he's young, but there's much more uncertainty about his ability. And the Cowboys gave up a first rounder, not a third rounder. Now, they too will qualify for a compensatory pick, but not a first round compensatory pick. There's no such thing as a compensatory first rounder. And that's assuming they don't cut him. It's a rare thing that a top 10 pick in the NFL draft gets cut before the end of their contract because NFL teams are incentivized to ride out these rookie contracts so they can get the compensatory picks when those players enter free agency. This was what was so mind-numbing about how the Detroit Lions mishandled Eric Ebron. They just cut him, forfeiting future compensatory picks. Like, what are you doing? Those running the Lions don't have any idea what they're doing. Evidenced by, evidenced by Eric Ebron's release, evidenced by the release of Anthony Zettel, who even John Dorsey knew belonged on a 53-man roster. And then just giving away Golden Tate, who had real value. Golden Tate had an expiring contract, just like we hear about in the NBA all the time. The same is true with some NFL players. It's just that most NFL players don't make it to the end of their contract. They get released before their contract expires, especially someone like Indomitian Sue, who signs one of these bloated mega deals that are impossible for the team to fulfill. Golden Tate never signed a mega deal. Golden Tate signed a reasonable free agent deal. And because he was on a reasonable contract that was expiring, he had great value. I can imagine Howie Roseman sitting back in pleasant shock and disbelief when the Lions agreed to terms. So you get a player better than Amari Cooper at a much lower price point. Remember, Amari Cooper, because he was drafted in the first round, has a high salary if you pick up his option next year. It's over $14 million. Like, oh, well, you can get an extra year on Amari Cooper's contract. Yeah, at $14 million. Is Amari Cooper worth $14 million based on what we've seen for the last two years? No. 
If I was asking you this question for your life, what would be the answer? Is Amari Cooper a bust? If you had to answer that question for your life, you would say, yes, Amari Cooper is an NFL bust. Because it's not just one season of catastrophic inefficiency. It's the following season where he wasn't targeted. So you go from getting targets and not converting receptions for whatever reason, leading the league in drops being one of them. So you go from that state of affairs to just not getting targeted, having games where you disappear, where the quarterback just ignores you. What's worse? You could argue not getting targets is worse than getting the targets and not squeezing the football. Golden Tate has never had this problem. When Golden Tate was underutilized in Seattle, he was efficient in the face of a low target volume. Then, when he arrived in Detroit and Calvin Johnson went out with an injury, Golden Tate stepped up and became a top 10 wide receiver in fantasy football. So Golden Tate has been efficient in the face of low volume and high volume because he has that yards after the catch je ne sais quoi that we've talked about for years. Yak is not sticky unless the player's name is Golden Tate. I know Golden Tate is good. If for my life I had to bet on Golden Tate being an efficient player, I would take that bet. If for my life I had to bet on Amari Cooper being an efficient football player, I would run. That's the difference. And Amari Cooper is a poison pill player because then if you invest a first round pick in him, you're forced to extend him at over $14 million. And if you don't have that $14 million, you have to work out a multi-year extension to spread the money out. It's a poison pill. So Howie Roseman sidestepped the poison pill that is Amari Cooper. And he opted for a player who's less expensive than Demarius Thomas with an expiring contract. Demarius Thomas is owed $14 million next year. He is going to be cut before June 1, and the Texans will receive no compensation in return because Demarius Thomas is not good. It was a fourth-round pick for a pure rental as opposed to a third-round pick swap. So Howie Roseman outmaneuvered Jerry Jones and whoever the hell runs the Texans like a roster construction maestro. Woo! Love you, Howie! And we'll talk to my guest, Greg Smith, from 2QBs, about the fantasy football implications of these trades. But before I talk to Greg, I have a personal anecdote I want to share with you. And so for the next few minutes, there will be no hardcore fantasy football talk. Those of you that are only listening to this show for the hardcore fantasy football talk, feel free to fast forward. I get it. You don't have a lot of time, and this is a two-hour podcast. You need to get in and get out with your football takes, and that's it. I get it. That's the beauty of podcast technology. You have the option of fast-forwarding. I hear this criticism on Twitter. Oh, your, your show's too long. Maybe shorten it up a little bit. Why? You're not sitting in a theater. This isn't a long movie. You could just hit a button to fast-forward, or you could skip ahead 30 minutes if you must. Like I care, a listen is a listen, a download is a download. And a lot of people, especially those on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash podfather, the true producers of the show, they are the only listeners I care about, and I've polled them, and the last thing they want are shorter shows. So I talked to you about what I was doing on Sunday afternoon in parallel with what another individual was doing on Sunday afternoon. The other individual is named Pete Christensen. That's right. Otherwise known as Draft Pete Cheat, our nickname... Poking fun at his 
very silly Twitter handle. My sense is that he and I experienced Sunday very differently. Because when Patrick Mahomes threw his fourth touchdown pass, his second to Sammy Watkins, Peter Christensen knew it was going to be a good day for him. His calls were hitting in a GPP. He was about to make a lot of money. So what did he do? Peter Christensen's first inclination, his reflex response, was to run to social media and make his winning lineup about me. Think about that. Think about the psychology of the individual who is so maniacally fixated on another individual that they can't even enjoy success, right? It always has to be framed in the context of someone else. He just had to make it about me for whatever reason. I don't know why. I don't understand the psychology of that individual. Even when he's winning, he's losing. Think about it. Even at the heights of success, there's no joy, just resentment. At DraftCheat writes, you can follow little baby fantasy mansion who's never won a single cent or, well, you know, be smart. That was his means of celebrating, calling me names. And he goes on, our guy, Fantasy Mansion, recommended Case Keenum over Patrick Mahomes in cash. There's a reason he doesn't play DFS. So let me get this straight. Your lineup landed in the money because you played the highest owned, highest priced quarterback on the board? <laughs> I imagine that when draft beat cheat hits, it would be this contrarian play. See? I played Cam Newton against Baltimore. Suck it! That's what I was hoping to see, expecting to see. Not Patrick Mahomes. Not the most basic play on the board. Like, Yeah, we know Patrick Mahomes was a great play in GPPs, Pete. And why are you talking about cash? I don't see any cash games in these screenshots. You're talking about cash games and then waving around a GPP lineup. What? And since when is Pete a top high-volume cash player? I'm looking at the top players on Roto-Grinders right now. I don't see him. Where are these cash game credentials? All you could do is play the result on four Patrick Mahomes touchdowns? That's all you got? <laughs> and it would be Patrick Mahomes. Of course, Draft Pete Cheat loves Patrick Mahomes, the quarterback with the most unsustainable touchdown rate. After getting buried by Calvin Ridley for consecutive weeks, he goes right back to Patrick Mahomes, just rushing into the arms of the most unsustainable touchdown rates in the player pool. Classic draft cheat, touting touchdowns after the fact. I mean, congratulations. You played the most obvious quarterback play on the board, and you won some money. Good boy! Good boy, draft Pete! Good boy! Come on! Come on, Draft Pete! That, that sounds like a puppy, right? Come, boy! Come, boy! Come, Draft Pete! Good boy! Good boy! You want a treat? You want a treat? You play Patrick Mahomes? Good boy! Good boy! Four touchdowns! Good boy! Sit up! Okay, roll over! Oh, scratchy! Oh, yeah! Scratchy, scratchy! Oh, yeah! Run along! Calvin Ridley and Patrick Mahomes. You just, you can't make this up. These are his guys! A DFS player setting up an account for the first time. Saw about 700,000 commercials for DraftKings five years ago. I think I'm ready to give it a try. Let's see, I'll play Patrick Mahomes and Calvin Ridley. <laughs> right? I mean, basic. And then Peter Christensen felt as if he needed to provide evidence that I touted Case Keenum in cash. So he found a subscriber email. 
that we send out to everyone that has access to the rankings, the DFS lineup genius, data analysis, the draft kit, crops out the advice to play James Conner and Larry Fitzgerald in cash, crops out the context of the email. Our plays of the week every week are typically contrarian plays that not enough people are talking about. Or in the case of James Conner, a player that is simply the best value on the board and you need to bend your will to make sure that he's in your lineup. But most of my favorite plays every week are the contrarian plays, the under the radar options. So that context was missing and all the other great plays were missing. No one needed me to tell you to play Patrick Mahomes in a tournament or Todd Gurley in cash last week. However, we did believe Jared Goff was a strong tournament play and the millionaire maker winner on DraftKings played our play of the week in GPP, Jared Goff, with Josh Reynolds. <laughs> and this was before Case Keenum threw for two touchdowns and matched Ben Roethlisberger and exceeded Aaron Rodgers, who were also highly touted cash options that week. But Case Keenum happened to come in at a much lower salary level, 5,100 on DraftKings. He's sending this information out into the world before Case Keenum has a touchdown pass. Next thing he knows, Case Keenum has two touchdowns. And it's like, oh no, he's now gone over 3x. Shit. Yeah, shit. This is what happens when instead of just celebrating your own success, you try to make it about someone else. A success that happened in week eight, I might add. I was not aware of a victory flag being raised in weeks one through seven. We finally hit on a lineup in week eight. And you read these responses. Oh, draft beat cheat just made more in a day than you make all year. Really? You know, it's week eight, right? It's week eight. So I don't even know if you can call that winning. More likely, it's a sigh of relief that one is back to even. And if you read the analysis of Case Keenum that he screen capped, it was excellent analysis. Talking about volume and efficiency, not about touchdown rate. And sure enough, Case Keenum cashed. And those that played him also played Todd Gurley, James Conner, and Joe Mixon. In his face! In his face! And in the face of all of his droning followers, money throws, LOL, just waving a flag of ignorance, have no idea what money throws are. But the fact that Case Keenum was top five in money throws, top 10 in deep balls and total pass attempts mattered. I laid out my argument succinctly in that email and exactly what I foretold occurred. Just imagine if Case Keenum benefited from garbage time. Imagine if they were out of contention in the fourth quarter. The Broncos didn't score a touchdown in the last 10 minutes of the game. Just imagine how hard Peter Christensen could have been dunked on by Case Keenum. Oh, could have been so much worse. But that's what happens when you're tilting. If you're a person who is filled with resentment and tilts easily, this is how you're going to experience success. You are going to find a way to lose while winning and drag others down with you. That is the life of the internet troll. Because while Peter Christensen was getting back to even and mocking my prescient Case Keenum analysis, I was on my way to a community event. It was sponsored by a local synagogue, and it was important to myself and my wife that we attend because we are active members in this community. A Holocaust survivor would be speaking, and 
It was less than 24 hours since the massacre in Pittsburgh, which occurred in Squirrel Hill, where my wife grew up. She was emotional. And as we're walking in to this event, that's when I received the first tweet bragging about Patrick Mahomes, of all players, and calling me names. Let that sink in for a minute. I'm using Peter Christensen's real-life name because this is real life. That was my real-life experience. Just think about the demoralizing irony of that experience that I'm being harassed on social media as I am going to an event that is only necessary because people died after someone was activated by hate speech on social media. And that was just the latest one. The serial bomber that was recently apprehended was a notorious Twitter heckler. So these taunts are reaching me just as I'm turning my phone off to enter this event. And this isn't the first time that Peter Christensen has gone too far with his online heckling. In fact, the same day, he finally felt obliged to apologize to Evan Silva. How do you harass Evan Silva? Of all people, how is that the guy you decide to harass? Evan Silva is a pillar, the ultimate truth teller in this business who supports so many creators. How can you possibly find yourself in a position where you need to apologize to him? And here's the apology. I want to take a moment to apologize to one of the great fantasy football people, Evan Silva. We may not always see eye to eye, but my jokes have gone too far. Jokes. Hey man, I'm just joking online. It's not a big deal. What happens online isn't real. I'm just kidding. You can say whatever you want online, man. There's no consequences. Yeah, until 11 people in Pittsburgh are massacred and mail bombs start arriving all across the country. <laughs> As it turns out, words matter. Whether they're spoken or they're written on social media, they matter. And this is not a legitimate apology. Oh no, this is not a legitimate apology. Read the apology again. It's not a sincere apology. It's not Peter Christensen's fault that so many people didn't get his jokes and are shaming him into apologizing. This is really a shame you didn't pick up on all my jokes. So I guess I have to apologize. But this is the lament of the troll. Can't you just take a joke? What the fuck is wrong with you, bro? Take a joke? What the fuck is wrong with you? Turn your DraftKings app off for a minute and turn on the news. Wake up to the world around you. A world in which online harassment is not a joke, man. You're not joking when you call me names, just like you weren't joking when you mocked and belittled Evan Silva. And this apology is just rich. It has all the earmarks of the prototypical slime ball in every corporate office in America. Sorry if I offended you, sweetheart. I was just joking. Sorry if my jokes went too far. Is it too much to simply apologize? in a straightforward and humble fashion. I'm sorry, I was wrong, the end. And online heckles are not jokes. It's shameful and it's all the more loathsome when the person has 10,000 plus followers because then that harassment goes out to hundreds if not thousands of people. It's amplified exponentially. So as your audience grows, as a social media influencer, you have a responsibility because your words carry greater weight. This is common sense, but common sense isn't the strong suit of someone who doesn't even understand how touchdown variance works, is it? If he doesn't understand touchdown variance, how could he understand how social media influencing works? Unless he does, 
which makes it all the more disgraceful that he knows exactly what he's doing. Because there is a stark difference between my followers and Peter Christensen's followers. When you read my social media posts and the responses of my followers, they're cheeky, they're fun. They're shenanigans. Our shenanigans are cheeky and fun. Yeah, I mean, his shenanigans are cruel and tragic. Which makes them not shenanigans at all, really. Evil shenanigans. I swear to God, I'll pistol whip the next guy that says shenanigans. <clears throat> hey, Farva, what's the name of that restaurant you like with all the goofy shit on the walls and the mozzarella sticks? You mean shenanigans? Oh. You're shenanigans, right? Put those away! Every time Peter Christensen heckles me on social media, I receive an avalanche of tweets from this DFS guru mafia elite drone army. That's why on my way into this event, I did not merely put my phone on silent. I just turned it off because I knew I wouldn't be able to go on Twitter for six hours. And then I have to carve out time to start muting and blocking people. That's the cost to me. And that's the difference between how I respond and how he responds. I respond to my show. You have to go seek out the show and press play if you want to hear my views on this matter. On the other hand, I have no way to opt out of online heckling. Because those people, that species, the DFS guru mafia elite parasites, are not cheeky and fun. They are filled with rage and resentment. Why do you think draft beat cheat resonates so well with them? It all makes perfect sense. Agitating that segment of society, activating them, and then singling out one person as our guy, right? Because that's what he calls me, our guy, Fantasy Mansion. Do you think he's referring to me as our guy because I'm a guy that they support? No. Our guy means the guy I want you to send belligerent messages to on social media. The guy I want you to put in a heightened state of anxiety. Goons, I want you to go force him to turn his phone off as he's walking into a vigil. Our guy is a dog whistle for those people. And how do I know? Because I'm the target. That's how I know. Boom! Here comes the hate. Here comes the homophobia. Here comes the misogyny. As if on command. Oh, I've seen some things on social media this year I cannot unsee. And I've sent some of the worst of them to the top people at Roto Grinders because I don't know any of these people. DFS is a completely new and different world from traditional fantasy football. There are some truly evil motherfuckers trolling the DFS community, and it's unsettling. But I'm not afraid of them. They are cowards, and I am not going to cower from a coward. I am going to speak up and speak out on a perpetual loop until the harassment stops. It all started when completely unprovoked, Peter Christensen mocked my analysis on social media. That was the starting point. And I am going to see this through until the end. I am not going to cower in any way from these people. And I've said this to leadership at Roto Grinders. I've said these exact words. Because the feedback to me is, well, you're egging him on. This is what he does. You're playing into his hands. He's not going to stop. You're just making it worse for yourself by fighting back. Does that language ring a bell? Now more than ever, individuals with integrity need to step up and not just slink away. Because I could just eat it. That's the other choice. Just allow someone to steamroll my reputation, calling my analysis the worst in the industry. But beyond that, 
Attack me personally. Call me names. Attack my lifestyle. My looks. Call into question my social orientation. As if that matters? Me coming on this program and defending my work, my brand, and my professional reputation is my duty. Because no one else is going to do it. It's all I've got. One of the members of Peter Christensen's following is the, in quotes, owner of the DFS guru, mafia, elite, whatever. He's one of the individuals, one of many, piling on every time I'm harassed on social media. MLB model something immediately chimes in implying that I'm a coward and my analysis is worthless because I'm not an active DFS pro. I don't watch the games. Blah, 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 blah. Pinkies up. Sex in the City GIF. Even though I've never talked about mimosas once on this show. I don't even like mimosas. But that's not really the implication of that GIF, is it? And no one is surprised when the DFS Mafia Elite Guru owners, in quotes, go online to incite venom. Remember the owner, Jeff Manns? Another owner? He didn't merely pantomime me hanging myself. He delivered his message to me by getting out an actual rope, tying it around his neck, and pulling on it. This embodiment of toxic masculinity lynched himself on stream. And that is a bell that cannot be unrung. I will never forget that. And unlike these rabbis that I heard speak that are amazing people, so forgiving, Jewish doctors, Jewish nurses, resuscitating this man that just slaughtered 11 people, their people. How are they so forgiving? I don't know. Because I'm not going to forgive Jeff Manns for this. I will never forget that image. That image is seared into my consciousness forever. And no, I'm going to go ahead and reject that suggestion and not kill myself. Thanks. And it's Jeff Manns and it's MLB model whatever. And it's Tommy G. I don't even know his last name. Let's just make up a last name for him. Tommy Google. It's MLB model something. It's Jeff Manns. It's Tommy Google. They are all part of the problem because they see the homophobic and misogynistic responses that they elicit. They see these loathsome characters in their audience and they say nothing. They just keep on scrolling. Except that one time that Tommy Google whipped his audience into such a frenzy that he had to post a disclaimer that we do not mean any harm to Matt Kelly. That we're just joking. Did they take the video down? No. We're not going to take the video down. No way. We did do this disclaimer. Pinkies up, Matt. And it's important to remember something else. Remember that I am, in fact, a heterosexual white male DFS enthusiast. I am who these monsters self-identify with. Think about that. Now imagine, imagine if I were a woman. Imagine if I were gay. Close your eyes and imagine that I was black. What do you think my mentions would look like then? I bring this up because I caught a glimpse of it. A black guy responded supporting me. And he was immediately hit with, shut up, you illiterate fuck. Welcome to America. <sighs> Let's get back to what we do best. Talk fantasy football. And Greg Smith advocates for my preferred fantasy football format, two quarterback leagues. Follow him at Greg Sauce on Twitter. Welcome to the Roto Underworld Radio Program. 
Greg Smith. You might know him from 2QBs.com. His maiden voyage on the underworld. Greg Smith, talk to me. Hey, Matt. It's good to be here, man. How you doing? You're a podcaster yourself, so you get how this works. I, I mean, more or less. Uh, we, we do things a little differently. We were just talking about that a little bit before we started, but um, I don't know. I'm interested to uh, see how this goes because uh, I'm a big fan. I've been listening for uh, a long time, and yeah, I'm just, just super stoked to be here, man. Oh, look at you. Look at you. Classic technique to soften up the host. Butter you up a little bit. Jeez. I was really going to jam you on a bunch of questions. Now I can't because you're a fan of the show, crossing this question off, crossing that question off. <laughs> Damn it. All right. So been asking most analysts this to start because this is big. What's happening is big. This is a very, very, very big deal. And I don't think we're going to fully appreciate how big of a deal it is until the offseason. But I want to talk about it while it's happening. This offensive renaissance that we're seeing in the NFL. How much are you enjoying it? How big of a deal is it for the sport? As a football fan, it's absolutely great. Like, there's nothing better for the league. Like, we saw this with the NBA as well, like that three-point renaissance they had. Now, on the other hand, as a fantasy analyst, it's made this season a bit more challenging. I've kind of struggled to recalibrate my expectations for how players are going to score, you know, relative to the baselines that we were used to from previous seasons, right? Like, um, a good example is, I, I talked about this on my show earlier this week, between 2012 and 2017, the average quarterback score in every season was under 17 points per game. But in 2018, the average quarterback score is 18.16 points per game. And of course, that production translates to other positions too, except for you know maybe tight end because tight end's a, a trash heap. But oh. I, I don't know. Like I, I'm not complaining because this is played like right into my hands as like a late round quarterback drafter. But it's kind of a pain in the ass to rank quarterbacks now each week and subsequently those other positions because it's easier than ever for a fringe quarterback to have just a huge week and blow up your rankings, right? Like I, I'm having trouble kind of sorting through this as an analyst, but. When I'm watching football and when I'm looking at the stats and appreciating the game, this is awesome. Like there, there's no no complaints from my end. Yeah, there's offensive parity, which makes rankings more challenging. And recalibrating the projections was something that we've been working on all season. Peter Howard collaborates with me on the weekly projections on PlayerProfiler.com, and this week we have four quarterbacks projected to score more than 24 fantasy points, and our projections lean conservative. And yet, this is the reality. When I first see this, opening up the rankings for the first time, my first thought is, come on, Peter, come on, let's bring these back <laughs> to reality. And then you look at the season averages and you're like, oh, yeah, this is just the world we live in right now. This is today's NFL, and I love it. Yeah, Mitchell Trubisky is a, what, top five, top six quarterback right now? It's insane. And Mitchell Trubisky is on a run, a historic run. He will finish with one of the top five best five-game runs in NFL history. That's where he's trending. <laughs> it's just, we knew Mitchell Trubisky was a great late-round quarterback. We didn't know he's going to be this good. No, definitely not. And, I mean... I know you were all over Patrick Mahomes in the offseason, but I would I don't think there was any way I could have seen this coming, mostly based upon the <laughs> just my expectations for a, what what is essentially a rookie year quarterback. And I understand he kind of redshirted last season, but what he's doing, what Trubisky's doing, I mean, even what Jared Goff is doing to some extent, like where I, I I saw how he played last year and you know, he put up this the fantasy stats to to you know back up being a quote-unquote good QB, 
I just I didn't see the that level of performance on the field as a quarterback, uh, you know, in real football terms to to have great expectations for him in 2018. But it turns out that, you know, yeah, that system just is good enough. And the modern NFL just is good enough to prop him up. I like nothing better than to see one of my most vigorous touts hit to such an extent and blow past all reasonable expectations that I have to be the one to pump the brakes <laughs> on the guy I loved. I'm the one holding the reins on my prized stallion. This is where I find myself with Patrick Mahomes. This is where I'm going to find myself with Marlon Mack soon. It's, I love it. Yeah, I mean, the hype eventually goes a little bit too far. Like, <laughs> we saw this with Deshaun Watson last year, like, people weren't really understanding why he wasn't starting over Tom Savage. And then once he got in there, he was, you know, killing it. He was a gangbusters, but you look at the production and it's not sustainable. It wasn't sustainable. And this year he's back to being pretty good, but he, was he as good as he was in 2017? Not even close. Yeah. If I, if I had to pick one player who could sustain an unsustainable fantasy point per game production rate, it would be Patrick Mahomes, but he's not going to score 28 fantasy points per game the rest of the way. That's not going to happen. You don't play players, especially in daily fantasy, based on touchdown rate. If the touchdown rate is way out on the far end of the bell curve tail, then the rational fantasy gamer won't play that player as aggressively, especially in DFS, as the public. It becomes this weird position that you find yourself in where you're preaching temperament of expectations on a player that you adore. It's very weird. Right. Well, and you can't necessarily recommend to sell him either because he's still going to be very good, right? Like you look at his upcoming schedule and yeah, there are some matchups that don't look great, especially in the fantasy playoffs. He gets Baltimore and the Chargers. Uh, and by then, Joey Bosa will be back. Joey Bosa supposed to come back this week, right? But I, I don't know if you can you can lean on those two matchups as a reason to move off of Patrick Mahomes. Well, also just football. It's just right. football. You can't throw for four passing touchdowns a game in the NFL. I don't care what new version of the sport is being played in 2018. It's not possible. And I love Patrick Mahomes. I love Patrick Mahomes. Get a room. I wanted the Chicago Bears to draft Patrick Mahomes at two last year. I thought it was a mistake. For every team that passed on Patrick Mahomes in 2017 to pass on Patrick Mahomes. One of the best quarterback prospects in years. And it made no sense that he was projected to be drafted outside the top 10 in 2017 by almost every NFL draft analyst. I love that man. I love his game. I love his voice. <laughs> I love everything about him. And I'm not playing him as aggressively as many in DFS. And that's okay. So that's Daily Fantasy. Let's talk about seasonal leagues for a moment. How would you describe your draft strategy heading into 2018? I play mostly two quarterback leagues. So I tend to draft for like positional balance and a pretty like with a pretty strict adherence to tiers between positions. And I think that's generally the best way to find value in two quarterback because all the positions are weighted a little more equally. But if I had to, you know, kind of put my strategy under a more relatable headline, I, I don't know. I'm a zero RB apologist. I'm a closet zero RB drafter. Like basically you're a zero RB and two QB league enthusiast. 
There's a reason why I love you, Greg. <laughs> I mean, this is the way to play. I, I mean, basically, I want those bell cow running backs if I can get them. But I'm not going to force it if the if those running backs were available to me at you know cost don't fit that bill. So I would usually try to get those guys in the early rounds, but I wasn't chasing second and third round running backs unless they had that true workhorse potential. So, I mean, probably the biggest exception was my fascination with Devonta Freeman, and that definitely burned me this year. But I also ended up with a lot of Joe Mixon and some Christian McCaffrey, and that's really paid off, like kind of being willing to take wide receivers in the first round still. And when it comes back in the second round, not forcing those running back picks, even though you feel like you're behind after taking a wide receiver in the first round. Does that make sense? Am I, am I? Yeah, you really couldn't lose this year unless you somehow drafted Le'Veon Bell before the news that he was holding out was released. But once the news that Le'Veon Bell was released, there's not a player on our draft kit top 12 that didn't hit. So really, all you needed to do was just take best player available in the first round and you were fine. And ideally, that was a running back because then you were incentivized to pound wide receiver over and over and over and over again. You see teams with Alvin Kamara, Michael Thomas, Adam Thielen, and they're just smashing. There's ways to beat these teams with Todd Gurley. Unlike last year where Todd Gurley was an invincible running back, the only running back that was able to keep pace with Todd Gurley throughout the fantasy playoffs and give your team a chance to win was actually Deion Lewis. If you didn't have Deion Lewis, you weren't beating the Todd Gurley rosters. I think that because there's more parity, there's more fantasy points being scored, Yep, it's more likely that a team can knock out the Todd Gurley roster in the fantasy playoffs this year, and it's a good thing. I mean, everything we talk about is a positive indicator for the sport. And as I mentioned, I love it. I also love the idea of just maximizing the number of points your roster scores. You get enjoyment from fantasy points being scored by your fantasy team. You don't get enjoyment because your roster mimics the real-life roster of a real-life NFL team. That's fine if you play in a 32-team fantasy league. Right. Then that's fine. That should be the goal. But if we're not going to play in a 32-team fantasy league, why do you care that your roster configuration in any way, shape, or form mimics real-life football? Well, all you should care about is maximizing enjoyment. And the way to maximize enjoyment is to maximize the number of players that are starting for you every week. That means two quarterback. That means three starting running backs. That means five starting receivers. As many flex positions as you fucking want. Yeah, and all that you talked about with kind of this offensive boom in fantasy backs that up. It also... Have fun, Greg. When you're looking at have fun. Strategy, Fantasy points are fun. When a player scores a touchdown on your bench, that's not fun. That's masochism. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> I, it's all right. Let's move on. Play in two QB leagues. Please. And if you can't do it, if you can't muster the political will to go two QB, Sell your league mates on Superflex. That's the bridge to 2QB. Just get there. Just add more active roster spots on a weekly basis. Everyone, starting now, start the email. Start the message board post. Send out the league text. Carrier pigeons. Whatever it takes. Propose these two rule changes 
today, at the very least, add one to two flex spots. And if you're in a single quarterback league, propose a super flex for 2019. If you're already super flex, propose two QB. Love it. Yeah, got to do it. You could even add a super flex to two QB leagues. Think about that. Think about that, Greg. Think about that. <laughs> Fantasy points. We started a two super flex, one QB uh, best ball roster this uh, offseason. Uh, and Love it. Love it. Needless to say, Sal and I are crushing it. Yeah, we, we are easily in first place. That sounds like a hell of a lot of fun. But hey, we could have less fun and go back down to one quarterback and two running backs and two wide receivers and one flex. Yeah, we could have less fun with that format. (laughs) Sorry. Don't apologize. I will never apologize for evangelizing the opening up of fantasy football formats. Fantasy football rosters is something I will never apologize for. Ever! What was your best take of this offseason? Best take? Um, Probably that Baker Mayfield was a safe bet to start 13 or more games because since 2008, quarterbacks drafted first overall have started an average of 13 and a half games in year one. I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm contractually obligated as a two quarterback analyst to love Tyrod Taylor. But the Tyrod truthers this past offseason were fucking ridiculous, man. Like, I thought that Mayfield would start in week one. I thought that the Browns would figure that out and, you know, probably would have under a rational coaching staff. But I, I don't know. Like, this is something that I thought was clear as day in the offseason, that Mayfield was going to be the guy in Cleveland. And for whatever reason, like, the pushback on that I got was crazy. It was like, no, they brought in Tyrod for a reason. He's going to school up Mayfield. Was that really it? I thought the Tyrod Taylor enthusiasts were just looking at the early season schedule thinking two potential shootouts against Pittsburgh and New Orleans. These are just those that have been demoralized by the quarterback position, just accepting that streaming is the way to go. I think those individuals were happy just taking Tyrod Taylor at the end of their draft, but that speaks to the difference between single quarterback and super flex and 2QB. Tyrod Taylor was a fine draft pick in single quarterback leagues because quarterback does not matter in those formats. Why would you play in a format where the most important position in real football and the most exciting position with the most fantasy points doesn't matter at all? But in a format where quarterback streaming is not possible, drafting Tyrod Taylor made no fucking sense, Greg. You have to play the long game. You have to view it through a different lens because otherwise you're just going to fall behind. And because if you go to the waiver wire to try and replace one of your starting quarterbacks in week three, good fucking luck. It's not going to happen. Oh, Nathan Peterman's there. (laughs) For a reason. (laughs) Right? I mean, hey, congratulations. And I actually think Nathan Peterman has some potential. I think that he has some gunslinger attributes. And he's been unlucky with turnovers, and I'd like to see a game in which Nathan Peterman doesn't get unlucky with turnovers, and what he can do with someone like Terrell Pryor could be exciting. I'm open to the idea that Nathan Peterman is not the worst quarterback in the NFL. I'm open to the idea. Behind that offensive line, though, he is. There are a lot of forces working against Nathan Peterman being good. I absolutely understand that, but I'm rooting for him. The Nathan Peterman mockery has jumped the shark. Right, the Nathan Peterman memes aren't funny anymore. Like I think we can now just go out and, and hope for the best for this guy. He's been a punchline long enough. Yeah, I'm into that. What was your worst take of this offseason? <laughs> I mean, there's so many bad ones. I don't know how I'm supposed to choose. Why, why don't I give you a couple and you tell me which one was worse? Um, 
Happy to do that. All right. So first, uh, I had Jared Goff ranked as my QB 20. Now, you came on my show in the offseason and said that Goff was the most overvalued QB in fantasy. He was. He was a fake gunslinger coming in, but I didn't have him ranked that low. Yeah. All right. So that's that's option number one. <laughs> 20? Option number two. Uh, and I mean, I honestly, like after the take I recorded for the player profiler draft kit pumping up Marcus Mariota, I'm a little surprised you asked me to come on the show. But holy shit, were we wrong about Mariota? Like he, he's been injured. Richard Matthews no showed. I get it. But I don't know. I feel like I could have. Assigned- I can rationalize this away. There's no excuse for Jameis Winston. This 2015 quarterback class was thought to be one of the better quarterback classes to come along. And Jameis Winston and Marcus Mariota are holding hands as they spiral to the earth. (laughs) But I believe... It's like point break without parachutes. Marcus Mariota has the ability to untether himself from Winston and pull a ripcord and land safely. Jameis Winston is going to... Jameis Winston is about to crater and there's no coming back from that. There's no coming back from eating the W the way he did. That was a tweet from Kevin Cole. The way Jameis Winston sucked on his fingers in the middle of the football field, you just don't come back from that. I mean, yeah, that's what they teach you. Marcus Mariota was playing in a monsoon in week one where he suffered nerve damage in his elbow and his number one receiver played five snaps on the season and his go-to tight end has been out since week two. Right, but is that nerve damage going away? Is Delaney Walker coming back? And the running back that's dominating the snap share has no hands. (laughs) Stumps. Literally is out there with just stubs. So that's the supporting weaponry that Marcus Mariota is suffering through this season. So for that reason, the most difficult schedule, the elbow injury, the below-average supporting cast, all have contributed to his disappointing season. And so for that reason, I see myself touting Mariota as the quintessential contrarian quarterback in 2019. And there's still a chance for redemption this season. I mean, we we do have to worry about that nerve damage. We have to worry that Delaney Walker isn't coming back, but he's through the bye. I mean, it could be a lost season. I'm fine with it being a lost season. In fact, if it's a lost season, I can more easily acquire Mariota two weeks from now in two quarterback and super flex dynasty leagues. Yeah, good call. So the glass is always half full, man. (laughs) Stay positive. Yeah, I am staying positive. With Mariota, I'm staying positive. With Jameis Winston, he can go to hell. R.I.P. So who is your highest owned player in fantasy drafts? Is that working out? No, it's it's depressing how much Doug Baldwin I drafted this season. I I, I kind of don't even want to talk about it. Damn it, Greg. I'm sorry I asked that question. <laughs> I like to set my guest up for success. I like to be the setter and you're spiking the ball away in volleyball and that's not happening thus far. No, no. I mean, not with Doug Baldwin, at least. Oh, my God. Sorry about that. Yeah, let's move on. I don't even want to talk about it. Well, you could just say that you pivoted off Doug Baldwin when his knee injury was announced. Nope. In fact, if anything, I steered more into it. I was like, oh, well, now he's getting so cheap. How can I stay away in the fifth round or whatever? I just kept drafting him. It's a complete nightmare. It's it's a total train wreck. I swear I thought I was saving it, Greg. No, no. Like I said, let's. this is the worst. I'm not happy about it. Evan Silva did that pivot effortlessly last week on Rex Burkhead. The moment the torn knee ligament was announced for Rex Burkhead, he immediately pivoted off of Rex Burkhead over to James White. So he turned a failed tout into a smash tout 
Classic Evan Silva. He is a take magician. Even if you pivoted to Sony Michelle, you're better off. Like ev- everything that happened with that backfield, like the only way you lost is if you really dug your heels in on Burkhead, right? Sony Michelle hasn't exactly worked out. Yeah, you got a couple of we- usable weeks from him, though, which you can't say about Burkhead. If you started him. Yeah. I mean, I, I did. I don't have Sony Michelle. You can tell I'm very underformed <laughs> with Sony Michelle. Didn't have any Sony Michelle. Have never drafted him in any format. Couldn't tell you. <laughs> How you should be using Sony Michelle? I'm just winging it with my Sony Michelle analysis. Clearly, so you've had some failures. What lesson did you learn in the last year that has made you a better fantasy analyst? Um, that's a good question. I think the 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 short answer, like the the easy one to point out to me, like this year, what's really stood out to me is how big of a difference pace and you know the number of plays an offense runs makes. Like if you look at Miami and Dallas and Tennessee, like if you just look at how slow those teams are playing on both sides of the ball, it's pretty easy to fade them. And that was something that I wasn't really doing last season. Um, another big takeaway for me has to do with the offensive line. Like I've already regarded O-line to be pretty important, probably just as important a supporting cast factor as any other position. But what I kind of dug a little deeper on this year is that O-line isn't always of the utmost importance. Like I kind of thought it was previously like good quarterbacks are good weapons, not for quarterbacks. Russell Wilson has showed you that quarterback, it matters very little. It matters more for the running game. Right, exactly. So good quarterbacks and, you know, good weapons can transcend a mediocre offensive line like Deshaun Watson, Kirk Cousins, Andrew Luck, Andy Dalton. But this season we're seeing that there aren't really enough good offensive linemen to go around. And I think that's kind of leveled the playing field to some extent. Uh, the teams that make a point to pay up for blocking seem to end up thin on the offensive line because of it. So those teams are always like one or two injuries away from facing the same problems that, you know, all the other teams with bad offensive lines face, like hello, Minnesota Vikings. But yeah, the, the running game is where you really see the impact always. Like if, if you have a bad O-line, you're going to struggle to run the ball. But if you have a good quarterback with good weapons, they can make up for a be- mediocre to bad O-line. And that's something that, I, I assign too much weight to those positions in previous seasons, uh, but I, I'm, I'm a little smarter now, or at least I, I think I am. And more specifically, the guard play. Yeah. The guard center play is critical for run blocking. The best guards are in Cleveland. That's why Nick Chubb is a great value right now in all formats heading into week nine, because when you think about game flow and recall the New England Patriots with Blunt and Vereen, well, this week doesn't feel like a Chubb game, right, against Mm -hmm. the Kansas City Chiefs. You expect the Browns to be down double digits in the second half. It's not a Blunt game. It's not a Chubb game. It's a Vereen game. It's a Duke Johnson game. But because that interior offensive line is so good at opening wide holes and because Nick Chubb is so explosive and he can exploit running lanes, you have to play Nick Chubb against a soft run defense like the Kansas City Chiefs regardless because he can deliver a splash play from the 50-yard line. And the Browns are incentivized to use him as much as possible to kill the clock to keep Patrick Mahomes off the field. You have to do it. You have to keep running Chubb. It's fine. Chubb can exceed expectations in the first half alone. Don't worry about it. Play Nick Chubb this week. So the the offensive line is a key data point for running backs. More for the between the tackles grinders like an Alex Collins than for a Ty Montgomery, for example. And Ty Montgomery is now in Baltimore. Breaking news. Will he be fantasy relevant in a Ravens uniform? I don't think so, no. I mean, does, is he going to play running back or wide receiver for the Ravens? Either way, both the positional depth charts for Baltimore are pretty crowded. I don't really see it. I, I 
Maybe he's an upgrade over Javorius Allen as the, the receiving back in that offense. Maybe. Aren't they the same guy? Aren't Ty Montgomery and Javorius Allen the same guy? Kind of. And and I would still expect Allen and Collins to get the touchdown looks like the goal line carries anyway. Like, I don't see Montgomery, you know, squeezing himself into the most important touches because he's still competing with Buck Allen and he's not going to get goal line work. I think you pick him up and you stash him just in case he becomes a satellite back plus. But I'm not hopeful. I wish I were more hopeful, but I'm not hopeful. I don't think it's going to happen for him. I think he played wide receiver for too long. I think the reason why he has ball security issues, the reason why he has blocking issues and trust issues with the quarterback is because he he doesn't have a running back's DNA. That's not how he's wired. He changed positions late in his career like Theo Riddick. He's a pumped up Theo Riddick. And that to me isn't that exciting on the Ravens when you have another guy, Javorius Allen, who looks like a pumped up Theo Riddick. (laughs) Now, Aaron Jones, though, Ty Montgomery's departure opens up snaps and routes out of the backfield for Aaron Jones. So it's a big deal for Aaron Jones. Is Aaron Jones a top 10 back the rest of the way? So I saw this question on the show sheet and I I actually just started counting out, you know, uh, to see if I could get to 10 running backs I'd rather have. And it's close. Like you can't take them over Gurley or Zeke or Saquon or Kareem Hunt or Melvin Gordon or Alvin Kamara. So then you're that that sticks already. Then you're looking at Joe Mixon. I'd probably rather have Mixon. David Johnson. No, probably about that. Yeah. David Johnson, a little more borderline. Uh, Christian McCaffrey, I'd rather have Christian McCaffrey. James Conner slash Le'Veon Bell. Like if you want to argue that they're going to eat into each other's workload, that's fine. Like maybe we can discount both of them. But that that leaves one spot in the top 10 for either Jones or Tariq Cohen or Philip Lindsay or Kerryon Johnson. I, I don't know. Like, I mean, he has the talent to do it and he's in the right offense to do it. But do you really trust Mike McCarthy to get him there? I'm I'm skeptical. I don't really see it. No, the answer is no to this. Yeah, I don't see him leapfrogging any of these guys. Philip Lindsay's playing better. Tevin Coleman is operating in the role we want for Aaron Jones, and he's been operating in that role on the Falcons offense since Devontae Freeman was lost. So how are you going to move Aaron Jones ahead of even Tevin Coleman at this point? Look what Adrian Peterson's doing. He's commanding more than 20 carries a game. He's the focal point of that offense. Who would you rather have, Kerryon Johnson or Aaron Jones? Of the running backs that are currently surging, Karrion Johnson has an equivalent talent profile, and he's been surging for multiple weeks. I would rather have Karrion Johnson, personally. I might rather have Aaron Jones, to be honest. I look at that schedule upcoming for Karrion Johnson, and it it does bother me. Like He's got a lot of tough opponents coming up. That's true. At Minnesota, at Chicago, Carolina, Chicago again, then the Rams. Even if those run defenses don't totally snuff him out, you're looking at, you know, potentially getting game scripted out of all of those games, too, where, you know, it's just going to become the Aaron Rodgers show across most of these matchups. So, you know, Arizona and Buffalo in the fantasy playoffs for carry on. Yeah, I want him there. But in the interim, like between now and then, he might be a little disappointing. I, I have more concerns about him than you. And I think I might rather have Jones. For me, Aaron Jones has leapfrogged the classic NFL satellite backs, Chris Thompson, Deion Lewis, Austin Eckler. Great job. He's also leapfrogged the one-dimensional between-the-tackles grinders in the NFL. Chris Carson. Alex Collins, Jordan Howard, Peyton Barber, Isaiah Crowell, LaShawn McCoy. He's leapfrogged all these guys. That's a good thing. He's now a locked-in RB2 in fantasy football. Like, this is something to celebrate. The fact that we don't have him in the top 10... Like, you see what I'm saying? This is like, this is what I was talking about with Patrick Mahomes. Like, I love Aaron Jones. Now I'm seeing him in the top 10. I'm like, wait a second. What? 
What are you talking about? He's great. Let's celebrate. Let's go for a joyride on the Pacific Coast Highway. And how about not drive the car off a cliff in the process? Yeah, and let's, like you said, start more flexes so that we can get guys like Aaron Jones into our lineup. You're starting Aaron Jones, of course. But am I starting him over Marlon Mack? Fuck no. I am starting him over Peyton Barber, though. Even though I think Peyton Barber is the most underrated between the tackles grinder. Maybe Chris Carson. It's close between those two guys because they're the new fresh faces without draft capital that are now the default primary backs in their offenses. And those offenses are not known for quality run games. Although it looks like in Seattle, their running game is back. Chris Carson's a must start every week now. Yeah, you, ha- you can't avoid it. Like, you just see the way they're using him, and you have to plug him into your lineup. It's it's the opposite of Aaron Jones, right? Like, Aaron Jones has all this talent, but Mike McCarthy just won't put him on the field for meaningful snaps, or at least he hasn't to this point in the season. Chris Carson, you know, Pete Carroll, Brian Schottenheimer, they're just forcing that guy down our throats. And, I mean, if we can accept that, it, sometimes it's hard. Like, the aesthetics of it might not— Got to accept it, man. Yeah, if, if we may not like the way it looks. We may not like the way it impacts Russell Wilson and his receivers, but— this is the If this is the way they're going to play, we have to adjust to that as fantasy owners, for sure. Even when you wait the opportunities, and we know Aaron Jones is in a superior offense, if Chris Carson's going to get 25 carries and Aaron Jones is going to get 15 total touches, I gotta play Chris Carson, man, and I'm not sorry. Now, Jalen Rashard, I think he's the most underrated satellite back in the NFL at this point. Do you agree, or is there another satellite back that you think is even sneakier to stash. I think it's either Richard or TJ Yeldon. I think you could take your pick. Oh, Yeldon. Yeah, we keep forgetting about Yeldon because, oh, Leonard Fournette's going to be back any week now, Greg. Any week. Totally not a lost season for Leonard Fournette. Any week now. Same is true for Latavius Murray. You could argue Latavius Murray is the most underrated between the tackles grinder because of the ominous return of Dalvin Cook. It could be a lost season for Dalvin Cook. Could be a lost season for Leonard Fournette. The 2017 running back class has crashed back to earth, hasn't it? Yeah, definitely. I mean, the Jacksonville trading for Carlos Hyde was really damning. Like, that really tells you all you need to know about Leonard Fournette. Like, there's no way they make that move if they think he's going to come back and be 100% this season. I feel like Leonard Fournette's hamstring is spaghetti with marinara at this point what the hell is on that mri what would have to be on that mri for them to go out and trade for carlos fucking hide yeah i mean think about it (laughs) (laughs) all right there's organizational issues there as well that might have led them to trade for carlos hide i think that just the fact that they are so dead set on adopting that run first mentality tells you everything you need to know about the ineptitude of that franchise and kind of the direction they're heading. I mean, they, they still have Blake Bortles. They haven't tried to upgrade on Blake Bortles for how many seasons in a row now? Like, they just oh. don't get it. They're not a part of this modern NFL that all the other teams are, you know, uh, joining as we speak. And I think we can project for the remainder of the season, if Leonard Fournette doesn't play, TJ Yeldon to outsnap and outtouch Carlos Hyde. The same is true with Jalen Richard in Oakland. And the most underrated satellite backs are those that are operating in the inefficient offenses. Because those offenses can't move the ball, and oftentimes those teams, like the Raiders, find themselves behind in the second half, a lot of garbage time, those satellite backs see the field more because their teams are bad. 
So it's counterintuitive. Oh, I want my satellite back on the highly efficient offense. Not really. You don't want a satellite back on the Rams. He'll never play. It's the Todd Gurley show. You want your satellite back on a team like the Raiders, where the de facto starter is Doug Martin, and Jalen Richard will be on the field more. Does that make you concerned about Tariq Cohen going forward? Because... I mean, that offense has been doing pretty well, although maybe you would argue that it's doing pretty well because they are secretly a bad offense with Mitchell Trubisky and they have to use Cohen the way they do. Like, where are you at on that situation? The Bears defense is not the best defense in the league. It's one of the most overrated defenses in the league. And I would argue that in the second half, the Dallas Cowboys will have a more efficient defense, allow less yards, touchdowns, fantasy points than the Chicago Bears. Tariq Cohen barely cracks the top 15 because he's fantastic and he's delivering splash plays whenever he's called upon, but he's difficult to trust. Last week, six touches. Now, he turned those six touches into 18 fantasy points, but you can't trust that week in, week out. That's why he's not an RB1. He's an RB2, and between the tackles, Grinders commanding a huge opportunity share, like an Adrian Peterson or a Chris Carson, are more trustworthy week to week. So I'm with you. I think that Tariq Cohen is more similar to an Austin Eckler than he is a Christian McCaffrey. Yeah, totally agree. But he's really good, man. I mean, Electric. 110 yards on six touches. Think about that. Just let that sink in. But that's the argument for Richard, too. That's why we like Jalen Richard is because he can take a limited number of touches and he can blow those up. Richard's going to log more snaps and probably run more routes out of the backfield than Cohen this year. Now, Todd Gurley is the best. Hot take. Beating a team with Todd Gurley in the fantasy playoffs is going to be a challenge. Is Todd Gurley the next Ladanian Tomlinson? He's certainly on his way. In fact, you might be able to argue that Gurley is on track to be better than Tomlinson. Well, that's really the question, right? That's what I'm going for with that question. (laughs) That's what I want you to say, Greg. In LDT's 10 years as a full-time starter, he only finished three seasons averaging more than five yards per touch, and Gurley has already done it twice and is currently doing it again with 5.8 yards per touch in 2018. Now, granted, Gurley hasn't seen the same sort of touch volume that Tomlin said during his career, but no running back is ever going to see that type of volume again. That is is over. Gurley is on pace for 400 touches right now, I think, which would smash his career high of 343 from last year. So if it, I, I do have some concerns that Gurley might be peaking too soon in terms of usage. Like I'm I'm worried that maybe this will make it hard for him to hold up over a career like LT did. Well, the touchdown rate is going to come down. Come on. He's not going to score 30 touchdowns. Get out of here. Do we have to pencil in Malcolm Brown and or John Kelly for starts in week 16 and 17 because of this, though? Because you look at the touch volume that Gurley's getting, and that's not something that any running back should get if they're trying to keep him healthy and if they want him to be you know, 100% for the playoffs. Well, that's where the contract extension matters. Right. They're invested. It's now a symbiotic relationship between the running back and the franchise in Los Angeles. So you could absolutely expect and should expect Todd Gurley's carries to be wound down starting not in week 17, but in week 16, perhaps even week 15. Look at the standings, Greg. The Rams are 8-0. The Seahawks are the second place team in the NFC West at 4-3. and Every team in the NFC North is 4-3, and 3-3, three, three and three, or 3-4. Three and four. The only other team with a win percentage, even close to the Rams, are the New Orleans Saints. So you can absolutely see the Rams heading into Week 15 with a bye locked up.
So Todd Gurley is at risk of having his workload severely curtailed in the most important weeks of the fantasy playoffs. Yeah, it's it's got to be a concern. And you can get out ahead of that and pick up Brown or Kelly if you want. Uh, but then you're wasting a bench spot for however many weeks. It's kind of a, a catch-22. I don't really know what the right answer is. Like, what are you doing with those guys? Are you picking them up or are you just letting that be someone else's problem? You roster Malcolm Brown, bro. I am not shy about handcuffing backs in situations like Todd Gurley when my fantasy team is 6-2 and two, heading into week 9, and I know I'm going to make the fantasy playoffs, and I have a couple fringe guys on the back of my bench. It's irrational not to pick up Malcolm Brown in that situation. But if you're 3-5 and five, or if you're 4-4, four and four, this is like fantasy anal- analysis can't exist in that sort of vacuum, right? Like you can't just say that, oh, go pick up Malcolm Brown. Oh, no, no, yeah. If you don't believe you're a lock to make the playoffs, you're not picking up Malcolm Brown. Get out of here. Right, and I feel like we cut a lot of corners when we we talk to people about this stuff. We don't qualify enough things. I mean, and it's hard. We don't have time as analysts to qualify every corner case, but... I cut a lot of corners. I mean, me too. We have to, but this is one of those cases where you, you're going to hear everybody telling you to pick up Malcolm Brown, to pick up Spencer Ware. But if you're three and five, you can't be thinking that long term. You have to think about this week and this week only. I wouldn't worry about James White, though. You know, the New England Patriots are going to run James White into the ground. They could care less. If there's a team that, could, that couldn't care less about the health of their players, it is the New England Patriots. Hey, Sony Michelle, your knee doesn't work. Let's go play some football. What should fantasy gamers do with James Conner at this point? With James Conner, I mean, you keep using him. You assume he's going to be the full-time starter for the rest of the year. That's the status quo at this point. If Bell eventually reports and screws everything up, then you just use Bell liberally in DFS to kind of soften the blow, right? But at this point, there you go. you're go. you already playing with house money with James Conner. Just enjoy it and, and keep using him as if he's going to be the starter all year. Why not? That's right. Yes. And now news has surfaced that Le'Veon Bell may have a wink and nod agreement with the Pittsburgh Steelers to not franchise him next year, which is a great point, right? Why on earth would the Pittsburgh Steelers franchise Le'Veon Bell next year after James Conner broke out? You might think, well, James Conner breaking out is bad for Le'Veon Bell. No, it's not. This is great for Le'Veon Bell. This is what Le'Veon Bell wants. Le'Veon Bell just wants out of Pittsburgh and with a rejuvenated career in 2019. For whatever reason, that's what he wants. We can blame his agent for guiding him down a suboptimal salary path. But what's clear is Le'Veon Bell doesn't really want to play football this year. And if that's true, he doesn't have to worry about playing football in Pittsburgh next year. There's not a world that exists in which the Pittsburgh Steelers are franchising Le'Veon Bell in 2019. He doesn't have to worry about that. He's gone. Where do you want to see him go? Philadelphia. Yeah, it's a good fit. I actually prefer Tevin Coleman in Philadelphia. If I could create a perfect landing spot for every player, Le'Veon Bell in Houston, I think might be better. I think he's a better fit with Deshaun Watson. They, I think Deshaun Watson could really benefit from a quality check down running back. And because there's no tight end of consequence in that passing game, I think that Le'Veon Bell would really vacuum up all the short intermediate targets in Houston. I think it would be a great fit for fantasy football. I think it'd be a great fit for real football. And that would also allow Tevin Coleman to go to Philadelphia, which is the dream scenario for Tevin Coleman dynasty owners. The other running back that's a pending free agent is TJ Yeldon. Criminally undervalued and underrated by all football fans, even Jacksonville Jaguars fans don't quite know what they have in TJ Yeldon. If they just rolled with TJ Yeldon, 
and drafted Patrick Mahomes instead of Leonard Fournette, where would that franchise be right now? Oh my God! Not drafting a running back has been a not drafting quarterback has been a catastrophic mistake for franchises in consecutive years. Jacksonville in 2017 and New York in 2018 with TJ Yeldon. You don't want to blow up an existing running back that you like, like Aaron Jones. I like Aaron Jones, but I think TJ Yeldon would be a great fit in Green Bay. If Aaron Jones, for whatever reason, doesn't work out, he's had arrests, he's had injuries, I like him. But TJ Yeldon in a Green Bay Packer uniform would look really nice. How about in the other Bay, Tampa Bay? Because Ronald Jones isn't the answer. Peyton Barber's good. Like you said, he's pretty underrated, but Peyton Barber isn't catching passes out of the backfield. Let's get TJ Yeldon down there to play with, I don't know, whoever they have at quarterback next year. I'm actually more interested in Tampa getting a great satellite back. I'd love to see someone like Chris Thompson in Mm. Tampa just to maximize the weaponry, just to hoard the weapons in all quadrants of the football field to have them covered. I think that's the one thing they're missing is a is a strong pass catcher. Now, certainly TJ Yeldon is a satellite back, right? He's a pumped up satellite back, but is Chris Thompson going to be a free agent? You know what you can say, Greg? You can say, oh, the team can get out of his contract because that's true of like everyone. <laughs> Every player. <laughs> that's, that's a rhetorical trick in football analysis is, oh, well, you know, Washington can easily get out of Chris Thompson's contract this offseason. No one's going to look that up. <laughs> Right. So I can absolutely see Chris Thompson in Tampa. They'd be a great fit. Now, another satellite back plus that I think has the potential to be fantasy relevant this season is Elijah McGuire. Is he a great stash? If you're not going to stash Malcolm Brown, what about Elijah McGuire? Yeah, I mean, he could very well slot into that type of role that we talked about with Jalen Richard earlier, that guy who's going to catch a lot of passes out of the backfield. He's he's definitely a great stash. I also I'm looking at Devonta Booker uh, in Denver. I'm not super excited about it, but Royce Freeman is dinged up. Philip Lindsay is a little undersized, and he runs really violently. I don't know if we can completely expect him to hold up over the whole year. I don't like to forecast injuries, though. Um, but with that said, Booker might be relevant right now while Freeman is hurt. And in the fantasy playoffs, uh, the Broncos face San Francisco, Cleveland, and Oakland, which you know that's that's a pretty nice matchup for running backs, I mean, for offenses in general. So I don't know. He's another guy I'm looking at. But yeah, I really like the McGuire call, too. Philip Lindsay's undrafted. Philip Lindsay's efficiency has been a bit of an illusion. And I think that Royce Freeman and Philip Lindsay are much closer in terms of when you're adding up their traits. Mm-hmm. Philip Lindsay is a well above average satellite back, but I also think that Royce Freeman is a well above average between the tackles grinder. But because one has faced so many men in the box with his carries and the other has not, the perception is really skewed because of that. That's why I have to look at these running backs in context. Now, let's look at the context of these wide receiver trades that happened yesterday. Mm-hmm. Who was the biggest winner from yesterday's trade frenzy? So the chalk answer is Cortland Sutton, but I'm going to say it's Carson Wentz. He was getting close to nothing from the receivers not named Alshon Jeffrey or Zach Ertz on his team. Getting Golden Tate, I think, really opens up that passing game. I'm really excited to see what he can do now that he's fully healthy with Golden Tate in that offense. You know, wide receivers changing teams don't always hit right away, but if Tate gives them anything out of the slot, I think Carson Wentz could be, you know, a top, three top five quarterback the rest of the way you mentioned Alshon Jeffrey Cortland Sutton's best comparable player on player profiler is Alshon Jeffrey 
because Cortland Sutton has the best size adjusted agility of any wide receiver in the NFL. He runs a 1068 agility score. So when you combine the three cone and the 20 yard shuttle at 63218, no one that big has ever been that quick. And now he's being thrust into a starting role for an offense that needs to throw the ball to compete, especially in the AFC West. So Cortland Sutton is absolutely the hottest waiver wire ad. Waiver wire, waiver wire, waiver wire, waiver wire. Yes, it's Cortland Sutton. He's going to be the starter, and he has the size-adjusted athleticism, and he has the age-adjusted college dominance to suggest that he can be a true number one in the league as soon as this season. Because Emmanuel Sanders is a big winner, too. Yep. Emmanuel Sanders was the number one before this trade. He's now the entrenched number one, and his target share has simply solidified moving forward. And that's great. So I love Emmanuel Sanders. He's moving up our seasonal rankings, playerprofiler.com forward slash player dash rankings, as is Cortland Sutton. He's skyrocketing. And Deshaun Hamilton is a sneaky guy. He's now on the radar. You have to roster Deshaun Hamilton in deep leagues. Absolutely. The sneakiest one is probably Jeff Hireman, though. Like, think about... Oh, come on. Come on. Come on. Really? Have you seen his, his A dot? His average depth of target is huge. Oh, Let's keep that going. Jeff Hireman. Get okay. on board. Yes, yes. Hireman, Hewerman. I mean, yeah, I don't know how to pronounce it. Great that. job with that one target last week. <laughs> Jesus Christ. But who's their third receiver? Like, is it really Deshaun Hamilton? He's not playing. No, it's Philip Lindsay. It's absolutely Philip Lindsay. This is why Philip Lindsay is still a solid RB2 option the rest of the way because his target share is actually going to rise because of this trade. In Philadelphia, I enjoy watching the demise of Nelson Aguilar play out because I've been saying on a perpetual loop that Nelson Aguilar is not good. He was the most overrated wide receiver last year based on red zone target share and touchdown rate. It was destined to regress, and hello, it did because that's what happens with touchdown rates. They inevitably regress, especially when the player isn't good. And the Philadelphia Eagles told you with this trade, they waved the flag of surrender on Nelson Aguilar. He's not good. He's never going to be good. And anyone that paid up for him in Dynasty, for example, in the last year is a sucker. Golden Tate, though, gets a boost because he goes from a three-way wide receiver core to a two-way wide receiver core Yep. because I don't count Nelson Aguilar as their third receiver. Nelson Aguilar is a slot receiver, but Golden Tate's one of the best slot receivers in the league. So no way Nelson Aguilar is going to command targets in the slot with Golden Tate, the best yak receiver in the league on the roster. So now Golden Tate's competing with a true X receiver like he was in Detroit. He was competing with two X receivers, actually, and a tight end in Zachary. And he is a better quarterback. So for those reasons, I think that Golden Tate's projected fantasy output rises. Do you agree? Oh, definitely. Uh, like you said, it's he's going from a three-way split to a two-way split. That's pretty simple math. I am a little worried about what happens to those running backs in Philadelphia, though. Corey Clement, Wendell Smallwood. Why do you worry about them? Why do you spend any time thinking about those running backs, Greg? <laughs> well, I mean, now we don't have to. Why do you waste brain power? Neurons in your brain can be better utilized thinking about literally any other players in the NFL. Well, I talked at the beginning of the show about how I'm a closet zero QB or zero RB drafter. And with that in mind, I ended up with a lot of these kind of fringe RB3 types hoping that they would hit. And 
in Philadelphia, we, we just haven't gotten that, unfortunately. Like, it just hasn't happened. It's not going to happen now that they traded for Golden Tate. Like, the Eagles have shown us what they're going to do. They're all in on the passing game. They're all in on Carson Wentz. And for that reason, you're right. Like, we, I don't have to think about Corey Clement anymore. I don't really have to think about Wendell Smallwood anymore. But if I had those guys on my roster, it's it's basically time. It's time to cut bait. It's time to drop those dudes. If you have to stash any running back on Philadelphia, it's Josh Adams. It's Adams, yeah. Because Josh Adams has the profile of a primary back in the league, a true workhorse, because he has the size and he has the college productivity. He hasn't received the opportunity share yet, but that's why you stash guys. Hello. You stash guys on efficient offenses, hoping that they can command a higher opportunity share as the season progresses. That's the reason why you stash Josh Adams. In Houston, I believe the arrival of Demarius Thomas only helps Demarius Thomas, because at least with Will Fuller, this was an above average talent in the league who, depending on the matchup, could really command a significant target share and the attention of Deshaun Watson. I think that the injury to Will Fuller and replacing Will Fuller, not with Golden Tate, but with Demarius Thomas, a below average wide receiver in the NFL, some of the worst hands and route running of any receiver in the National Football League, like with Emmanuel Sanders, it just solidifies a top three target share in the NFL for DeAndre Hopkins. The moment Will Fuller went down, DeAndre Hopkins became the number one wide receiver in fantasy. And I don't think the acquisition of Demarius Thomas changes that. No, I totally agree. And to take it a step further, I think that the reaction of people, you know, wanting to fade Kiki QT going forward is totally overblown. Like, He's better than Demarius Thomas right now, and he's more well-suited to Deshaun Watson's style of play. And he can step into the Will Fuller route tree. He has the speed. Exactly. I mean, he he slots right into the Will Fuller role, and Demarius Thomas is the odd man out there. Like, I don't see why people would fade QT at this point. It doesn't make any sense to me. DT's been in decline for five seasons now. Here's why Demarius Thomas is going to get targets. They're going to run him on these drag routes, which is all he could run at the end in Denver, and he's going to soak up targets because there is no tight end and there is no running back of consequence in that passing game. Because that passing game lacks weapons, Demarius Thomas is going to get targets. And I think that Demarius Thomas' fantasy output will rise in Houston because it's a more efficient offense and he'll be playing a similar role that he was in Denver. That's the second time you've done the podcast equivalent of subtweeting Lamar Miller, just for the record. But my larger point is it's the DeAndre Hopkins show now more than ever. Totally agree. Wide receiver one. Best case scenario for DeAndre Hopkins is Deshaun Watson's healthy, Will Fuller's not. In those games, DeAndre Hopkins is a threat for 20 targets in every game. That's why he's the number one wide receiver in fantasy right now. Book it. Now, in Detroit, I believe that Golden Tate going to Philadelphia actually helps Marvin Jones more than Kenny Galladay. Do you agree with that? Uh, I... Yeah, I can see it. I, I I would say that Jones's skill sets overlap a little bit more with what Golden Tate does in terms of like the types of routes they're going to run. But I mean, I don't know. I flip a coin for me. I, I don't see it. Marvin Jones is the alpha dog in that passing game still. In a vacuum, if I were starting a franchise today, of course, I would pick Kenny Galladay. Kenny Galladay is one of the league's prototypical outside X receivers who can run the full complement of routes. He can stretch the field. He can run those Demarius Thomas drag routes. He can do it all. And yet, he's not the guy. The alpha in that passing game 
for now is Marvin Jones. Kenny Galladay has been making a living on splash plays despite a subdued target share. Well, he'll continue to do that. But Marvin Jones, instead of suffering through these games where he doesn't get targeted because of the presence of Golden Tate, those are in the past. We're talking about 10 targets a game now for Marvin Jones. Do you have an opinion on Brandon Powell? Because his player profiler page is not very forgiving. Who's that? Exactly. (laughs) I think the slot receiver is going to be TJ Jones. TJ Jones is interesting because he does have a slot receiver profile. He does bring age-adjusted college production to the table at Notre Dame, and he's played that role in the past. So I think they plug and play TJ Jones in the slot, and he'll have a couple weeks where he catches six footballs for 60 yards, but... I'm not excited to roster TJ Jones, but in deep leagues, like a lot of the leagues I'm in, where we start five receivers, yeah, got to go out and get TJ Jones. Yeah, if you read the Roto War blurbs or the the beat reports, Brandon Powell is the quote unquote heir apparent to Golden Tate, but yeah, I don't I don't see it. This rarely ever happens that the existence of a player surprises me, but I haven't checked Roto World today, so I'm not aware of these reports, and I'm not aware of this player, Brandon Powell. So we have a rare glimpse at the Podfather discovering a player in real time. I'm on the edge of my seat. And I'm looking at Brandon Powell right now, and he looks awful! <laughs> Moving on. Cortland Sutton is happening. Traquan Smith is happening. Anthony Miller is happening. Is it possible that because so many of these rookie wide receivers are now happening, you mentioned Kiki QT earlier, you stack up these wide receivers. Is it possible that Calvin Ridley isn't even a top five rookie wide receiver this season? He's outside my top five. Oh! You know who else is outside my top five? And this is another instance where I have to be the guy tempering expectations and it breaks my heart. DJ Moore. All I'm reading is it's the DJ Moore show. DJ Moore. DJ Moore. DJ Moore. Oh, you want to go pick up Cortland Sutton? Oh, don't forget about DJ Moore too. Show me the targets. DJ Moore. DJ Moore. It's the DJ Moore show. Devin Funches who? DJ Moore. Give me more, more. Waiver wire, more. DJ, waiver wire, waiver wire, DJ. Slow down. Okay. Pump the brakes. Slow down. On DJ Moore. I love DJ Moore. Okay. I want to make that very clear. I believe DJ Moore was the best wide receiver in the draft. And I was saying that months before the draft when no one was talking about DJ Moore as a first round pick. And yet DJ Moore checked more boxes on his prospect profile than any other wide receiver in this class, including Cortland Sutton, who's fantastic. DJ Moore, even more impressive. But DJ Moore is 21 years old. And 21-year-old rookies take time. And Cam Newton is not a quarterback that supports a second wide receiver on a weekly basis. It's a rare thing that Cam Newton is spreading the ball out like Jared Goff. That's not what Cam Newton does. Cam Newton locks in on his number one wide receiver and Greg Olson. And when they're not open, what does he do? He runs the ball. He dumps it off to Christian McCaffrey or he runs the ball. The second wide receiver is a distant fifth or sixth option in that passing game. And the idea that DJ Moore broke out in week eight and that that in one week he has usurped Devin Funchess as the primary option in that passing game is fiction. So I can't believe that a player that I love is someone that I have to 
preach caution about. But here we are, Greg. Here we are. So he's outside of your top five. Who are your top five then? In no particular order. It's Traquan Smith. Sutton. Well, it's Cortland Sutton number one. Yeah, me too. I think Cortland Sutton is the number one rookie wide receiver the rest of the way. I think that's pretty clear. I think that's an easy call. But I also love Traquan Smith the rest of the way. Yep, Smith is my number two. No way DJ Moore is going to outproduce Christian Kirk. No way DJ Moore outproduces Anthony Miller. This could be a lost season for Allen Robinson. Think about it. And Anthony Miller has a lot of the same traits that DJ Moore has. And Anthony Miller brings to the table a lot of the same skills that DJ Moore brings to the table. He's also a yak monster, but he's two years older. Anthony Miller is a much more polished receiver at this point in his career than DJ Moore. And I hate to say it, Calvin Ridley's probably going to outscore DJ Moore the rest of the way. Kiki QT probably going to outscore DJ Moore the rest of the way. And what we saw last week from Marquez Valdez Scantling tells me that Aaron Rodgers wants that guy on the field. And if Aaron Rodgers insists that Marquez Valdez Scantling is on the field, he'll outproduce DJ Moore this year as well. Yep, MBS is probably my favorite wide receiver stash for the second half. I think that it's only a matter of time before he pushes out Randall Cobb and Geronimo Allison. I mean, you want to tie your receivers to good quarterbacks like Aaron Rodgers. I think that's kind of a no-brainer. MBS all the way. You add Kiki QT, it's conceivable that DJ Moore is not a top eight rookie wide receiver this season. But he had that big week eight, right? The thing is, we knew about week eight. We knew what we were getting with DJ Moore in week eight. We knew Torrey Smith was out. We knew that Marlon Humphrey, the second corner for the Baltimore Ravens, was also out and that Devin Funches would occupy Jimmy Smith. We knew this going in, that week eight was the week to stream DJ Moore. And I say stream because I don't mean pick him up and play him every week. I mean stream him in week eight, but know what you have. A 21-year-old playmaker who's not someone you trust on a weekly basis in the context of the Carolina Panthers offense. If anything, the presence of DJ Moore just helps propel Cam Newton. He's just another reason why Cam Newton will be the number one quarterback in the second half. See why I did that? See why I made it about Cam Newton? (laughs) That's smart. I mean, he's good. So we talked about how Nelson Aguilar was the most fraudulent wide receiver in 2017. I don't think it was close. Here's a game. Fraud or no fraud? I'm going to modulate my voice so it sounds cool. Every time you, you do the modulation, too, you do that breathy voice. Fraud. fraud. I know. I know. <sighs> it's like, here's the thing. You breathe it. I don't trust the computer <laughs> to modulate enough. I feel like I need to self-modulate with a manual mouth sound effect and then let the computer modulate on top of me so then there's extra modulation and it actually sounds worse. But that's because I'm not as good at this as I'd like to think I am. This is a fun peek behind the curtain for me because I've only ever listened to the show and heard it modulated. Now I get to hear it pre-modulation and it's... Yeah, it's ridiculous. Why do you do that? It's creepy. I I don't get it. (laughs) Fraud or no fraud? Jarvis Landry. Fraud. Volume dependent, as always. Oh, oh boy. I thought Jarvis Landry was going to command 200 targets this year. There's no one else in this passing game. Why isn't he more productive? Why aren't you more productive? You now don't have an excuse. You no longer have Jay Cutler and Ryan Tannehill. You now have Baker Mayfield, who can throw into tight windows, and yet you're not producing You're not producing fantasy points in line with your target share, Jarvis. What the fuck? Oh, I know what the fuck. You're overrated. That's what the fuck. So I emphasize that F and fuck really punctuated it there with the, the enunciation. Must be getting humid. Fraud or no fraud, 
Robert Woods. No fraud. I mean, what's not to like about a route running technician in a prolific offense like the Rams? Like, there's nothing to be afraid of here. Robert Woods is good. But is he a sell high with Cooper Cup about to return? No, if anything, Cooper Cup makes Woods better. Like, it just makes that offense better. I, I don't I don't care about that. According to the law of the conservation of targets, the return of Cooper Cup negatively impacts Robert Woods, but we're not going to know, right? We're not going to know this week. You sure as hell aren't trading Robert Woods before he gets to play the New Orleans Saints, where Brandon Cooks will occupy Marshawn Lattimore and Robert Woods will be locked up with P.J. Williams. This is the week of all weeks to play Robert Woods. Do not trade him. Trade Sammy Watkins? Hmm, I'm going to say no fraud here. I, I'm, I'm a little more tentative, but I just don't really see a reason to fade the Chiefs offense at this point. Like, why? I, if I can get any piece of that, I want it. I think he's a fraud, and I don't think it matters because he's, because he's on the Chiefs. Yeah, exactly. But we talked earlier about stash running backs. If you're going to stash a wide receiver, it needs to be Chris Conley. It's been Chris Conley all year because if there's an injury to Sammy Watkins, and we've seen those, and now there's an injury to Tyree Kill, he strained his groin late in week eight, in steps Chris Conley to run a full complement of routes with Patrick Mahomes. And he has a skill set that you could argue fits hand in glove with Patrick Mahomes just as well as Tyree Kill's. Get Chris Conley on your bench now, not tomorrow. Now, pause the podcast right now, wherever you are, pause the podcast. Are you driving? Pause it, pull over, get your phone out and pick up Chris Conley. Put on your four ways. Is Devontae Parker a fraud? I can't, I couldn't get that out. I just couldn't get it out. He's a, he's a fraud. Yes. I mean, let's, let's move on. He's a fraud. He is the king of the frauds. If there was a community or a kingdom like Monaco, right? There's still kingdoms, you know, in, in various pockets around planet earth because those make sense if there was a kingdom somewhere and it was a kingdom of just frauds the king would be Devonte parker deshaun jackson fraud no i mean djax makes every qb he plays for better except for somehow Jameis winston but i mean the track record is there he's good oh let me be clear about this for a moment i love deshaun jackson i believe that he makes everyone better and that's the reason why the buccaneers didn't trade him because they didn't believe they could get full value because they appreciate what Deshaun Jackson brings to the table. An elite field stretcher like Tyreek Hill or Deshaun Jackson not only produces when they catch passes, when they score touchdowns, but they're also partly responsible for everyone else's production. O.J. Howard, Mike Evans, Chris Godwin should be buying Deshaun Jackson a gold chain because he doesn't have enough of those <laughs> at the end of the season. To thank him for creating space for them to operate. I don't dispute that. What I dispute is fantasy production that's not in line with target share. And his target share of 15.1% is outside the top 60. He is a sell-high candidate in fantasy football, and you can sell him because there's a narrative that he benefits from the return to Ryan Fitzpatrick. I'd be curious to see, I don't know this off the top of my head, but what his target share was in those starts with Fitzpatrick compared to his target share with Winston. Do you know if it if it changed at all in a drastic way? It did not. With Ryan Fitzpatrick, five targets, four targets, five targets, eight targets. With Jameis Winston, nine targets, five targets, and then a mix last week, eight targets, some Winston, some Fitzpatrick. Okay, fair enough. Good point. Deshaun Jackson, fraud. Corey Davis? I'm going to say no fraud. 
You can hate Mariota if you like. You can hate Tennessee's early season schedule. Let me just tell you why he's not a fraud very quickly. The exact opposite reason Deshaun Jackson's a fraud. Corey Davis is not a fraud because Corey Davis is top 20 in the league in target share. He's been unlucky. Not a fraud. Yeah, don't hate Corey Davis. How excited are you for this Patrick Mahomes versus Baker Mayfield matchup? I mean, I'm pretty pumped. But I do wonder how Baker's going to do in this matchup because the Chiefs' pass defense has come around a little bit in recent weeks. And while Hugh Jackson Uh and Todd Haley getting canned is good for Mayfield long term, I don't know if we're going to see those positive effects, you know, immediately right now in week nine. Orlando Skandrick is experiencing a career renaissance. His coverage rating on player profiler, which looks at air yards per target allowed, target rate and pass breakups. Orlando Skandrick is somehow inside the top 12. I don't understand how it's possible, but it is. So he's the most improved cornerback this season. He and Joe Hayden are both top 30 on the player profiler cornerback rankings. And the other corner, Steven Nelson, his coverage rating is plus 25.9. That's number 14 in the NFL. So somehow, some way, the Chiefs have patched together a quality secondary. I'm excited for this game on principle because these two quarterbacks both played at Texas Tech, helped to popularize the spread offense all the way up to the NFL. Then they played one another after Baker Mayfield transferred to Oklahoma because he didn't want to compete with Patrick Mahomes. (laughs) Who would? Smart. And they had the most epic shootout in the history of college football. Eric McClung wrote an article about this on Yahoo this week. October 22nd. 2016, Baker Mayfield faced off against Patrick Mahomes in Lubbock, Texas, in a game in which the Oklahoma Sooners beat the Red Raiders 66-59. to So let that sink in. Let the score sink in first. 66-59 to in this game. Baker Mayfield threw for over 500 yards and seven touchdowns. Patrick Mahomes threw for over 700 yards and five touchdowns. Those two quarterbacks are facing off this week again at the NFL level. And if you're not excited about this, quit football. But I would argue there's an even more exciting game happening in New Orleans. Jared Goff versus Drew Brees. I mean, right? Yep. Yeah. My excitement level for that game is DEFCON Pointer Sisters. Like, we're there. Like, it's it's time. I'm so excited. It's amazing. And even though Jared Goff and Drew Brees will be locked into a shootout and Patrick Mahomes is Patrick Mahomes every week, he does Patrick Mahomes things. In DFS, is Cam Newton a better cash play than Patrick Mahomes? Oh, hands down, it's Newton. He's cheaper. He's at home. He provides a better rushing floor. And he's got a better matchup against Tampa. They're softer than Cleveland. I mean, this is, it's simple. Like, look at the cost relative to production. Way too easy. Okay, another game. Involving tight ends, a tight end contrived dichotomy. I did it again. <sighs> I did it the creepy thing again. I can't help it. It's like a It's Halloween. I'll let you I'll let you go with this time. I'm not even wearing a mask. If I were wearing a mask, it might make sense. But contrived dichotomy. Rapid fire if you were starting a franchise today and for fantasy football purposes. So I need two answers for each dichotomy. You follow me? Sure. OJ Howard or David Njoku? All right, fantasy first, uh, Njoku. I don't care about the goose egg in week eight. I think he's going to be more consistently targeted than Howard, and I do hate that threat of getting Cameron braided in any given week. 
Uh, real football, give me Howard. I have a feeling he's going to contribute more in the running game. I loved that zero from David Njoku last week. Gives us the recency bias advantage to continue to play him in DFS this week at a lower ownership rate. George Kittle or Jared Cook? Fantasy, Kittle, real football Kittle. Uh, I just much prefer tying my tight end hopes to Kyle Shanahan than John Gruden. You're wrong about this. In real life, it's obviously Kittle. If you're starting a franchise today, you want Kittle. But in fantasy football, Jared Cook, the rest of the way, competing for targets with Jordy Nelson, Seth Roberts, and Martavis Bryant, giddy up. Jimmy Graham or Greg Olson? Graham, chase the targets, err on the side of the healthier player. I would even prefer Greg Olson if I were starting a franchise today because he signed a two-year contract. Think Jimmy Graham is going to be productive three years from now? Hell no. Trey Burton or Jack Doyle? Real life Doyle. Uh, fantasy, give me Burton. He's used a little bit more downfield than Doyle. Um, and kind of like with O.J. Howard and Cameron Brate, I worry that occasionally Doyle is going to get a few more games spoiled by Eric Ebron, Eric Swope. There's just more potential for field bats there in fantasy. But in real life, Jack Doyle is a much better blocker. Yeah. And for that reason, he's more valuable than Trey Burton, who is essentially a pumped up wide receiver. Chris Herndon or C.J. Uzoma? Uh, fantasy, pretty safely Herndon for me. He has 66 more air yards than Uzoma on five fewer targets. Fan or For real life, I don't really have a strong opinion here. Uh, maybe you can tell me what you think because I, I don't really know these players super well. I, I would probably err on the side of Herndon. Okay. Spoiler alert, they're the same guy. They're athletic tight ends with burst who can get downfield, stretch the seam. I think in real life I'd go with Zoma, but it's close. Now, give me that one player that you qualify for truther status on. Uh, I, I had a couple different answers to this. I don't feel great about either one of them, but um, I'm, I'm still holding out hope for Deion Kane. You know, he was getting a lot of hype in the preseason, but then he got hurt. It, it's hard to know if he's going to be able to come back from that injury. Um, so with that said, I'll actually, I'll throw out Antonio Callaway as a guy I, I'm still in on. I think that eventually he'll probably figure it out. Uh, just not really thrust into a good situation in year one. I think it's too early to qualify for truther status on Antonio Callaway. I love the Dion Kane take. That's what we're here for, Greg. Remind us about Dion Kane. Yeah, I mean, just look at the receivers that the Indianapolis Colts have in place. Like Chester Rogers, Ryan Grant, they're fine. They're okay, you know, depth at the position. But Dion Kane was a, a very good producer in college, and he was getting a lot of rave reviews in the preseason. Now, you got to take those with a grain of salt, but at the same time, considering, again, the state of that depth chart at wide receiver, you have to still be excited about Deion Kane and what he can do in the future. I am excited. Let's say you're in a dynasty league and you're likely not going to make the playoffs. Why aren't you stashing Deion Kane? You do know that Andrew Luck leads all NFL quarterbacks in pass attempts, and there's only one wide receiver on that team that anyone can name outside the crazy, sicko, diehard fantasy gamers. It all points to Deion Kane being a factor in 2019, especially because he tore his ACL in camp. You'd much prefer the ACL injury to happen in camp, not in November. Yep. He'll be 100% for the start of training camp next year. Go roster Deion Kane. Now, I need one very bold prediction, and I mean very. Go out to the outer bounds of where you consider very to be, and I want you to go further. Okay, the Steelers, this isn't bold to start, but I'm going to get there. The Steelers are going to go into Baltimore this weekend. Oh, Jesus Christ! You can't do that! You can't do that, Greg! Cut to the chase? You can't nullify the hotness, extinguish the flames before they start to rise. What are you doing with that preface? 
I'm a Boy Scout, man. You gotta you gotta build the fire. You gotta set it up. You gotta set it up for success, Matt. All that buttering up in the pregame just wore off now, huh? I do not <laughs> accept that preposition. Strike that from the record. Go ahead. All right. After the Steelers stomp Baltimore this weekend, Joe Flacco is going to be replaced by Lamar Jackson. This time for good, Jackson's going to play at a top 12 quarterback pace over the balance of the season. Lamar Jackson, fantasy league winner. Lamar Jackson, Fantasy League winner. That would be the show. Was that bold enough? Hot enough? Oh, I loved it. That's exactly what we need. You're the 2QB guy, and then you swerve us at the end with a quarterback take on a guy that everyone forgot about. Evidenced by the release of Anthony Zedell. Zedell? Zettel? Zettel? Which makes them not shenanigans at all, really. Give me the the two-second version. Matthew Barry's been ranting lately? Uh, yeah, I've seen a couple of the videos. Congratulations to everyone that's finally doing the rants. You're a trailblazer. Taking a while. <laughs> We're finally here. So then, basically, the next day, Fabiano did a very similar themed rant. Oh, geez, okay. Well, I mean... Matt Burita, you know, people starting him and he's failing and then, you know what I'm saying? And then he's also, not only that, he's crowding out Mostert, who people thought was a flex play. So Matthew Barry came out on Twitter and, uh, you know, accused Fabiano of bit stealing. We're going to overlap on this stuff all the time as we talk about players and we talk about situations. Now I understand that, like, having the exact same player in that sort of rant is one thing but like i don't know like i'm gonna find similar stats and similar you know angles of analysis to attack as as you or as other analysts like that's that shit's gonna happen man you ever heard of the movie deep impact yes i have with the elijah wood not the porn movie greg how do you think the people at deep impact felt when they realized that there was another movie in production at the same time called armageddon <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. It's a, it's a great, great comparison. Based on nothing, based on no evidence whatsoever, I believe that the vast majority of idea thievery accusations are false. Connections are made in the brain. Information firing on certain neurons on a certain pattern in the brain is going to create these connections. And when we're all sharing the same Twitter feed and the same broadcast, the same information, the same data, why would you be surprised when the same connection points are made? I totally agree. Okay, you know how there's a, a super volcano that's underneath Yellowstone National Park that could wipe out the planet at any point in the next 10,000 years? Let's say that there was a signal that started that, that geologists were picking up. Some seismic activity. Right, that, that made them change their projections and to realize that it could happen a lot sooner than we might have expected, right? When multiple movies come out three years later about a super volcano, is anyone going to be surprised? I mean, no. Is that what I'm saying? Because I've been accused of it too. And, and I'm like, I swear to God, I don't follow you. I didn't read your article. And I don't know what to tell you. You need to stop looking for ghosts and, and just put your head down and do your job, bro.
But don't you hate like the other side of that where you actually do see the take ahead of time that you were going to write or going to podcast about and somebody else has already made that same point like on your feed or or something like that. It's I can't even tell you how many ideas I thought were genius ideas and then I googled them and the app already existed. I mean, in fantasy analysis, like I think you can still talk about a lot of that shit because we all have different audiences, right? Like you have to be able to I don't know, like disseminate that information. And yeah, if you saw it from somebody else first, it's better to credit them and you should credit them. But at the same time, like if you had, if you have to assume or, or if, if people are going to assume that everything I say has been said by someone else first and that I should be crediting someone else on every goddamn take, like that, we're never going to get anything done. If I have to Google every stat before I, I, I tweet it out or every rant before I make it, you know, I really like Matthew Barry. But he's made this accusation enough times. I remember a year ago it was someone stole the top 100 list. I listened to the show you did about that, actually. Like I said, I don't know. If I had to guess on a percentage, I would say 60-40 it wasn't stolen based on collective zeitgeist. I don't have a horse in this race. But this particular horse has a history, right, of being scared of his own shadow. Does Matthew Barry not know that he's an influencer? Does someone need to explain to him what that means? That this is all one big compliment? I can try to put myself in his shoes to some extent where and think to myself, you know, he's been kind of the alpha dog in fantasy analysis, at least, you know, on the internet for a long ass time. And for him to see other people, I guess, kind of nipping at his heels in terms of success and um, notoriety, I guess. They're not even though. I guess you're right, but the same way that I feel like like shame or nervous about like using information that I've heard from someone else or seen from someone else, like I don't like I want to be able to make the same points if they're good points. Like I could see it the other way to some extent where he's I, I, yeah, I, I mean you're right. I mean it's not he he doesn't really have anything to be afraid of, yeah. <laughs> when people copy my catchphrases or I see the way an article, uh, like the how an argument is structured in an article, and I remember when I started doing that for the first time, and then I see it happening, and I, you know, basically you just start seeing pop, 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 right? In the collective, I never have gone on my show and accused someone of idea stealing, because to me, I get a warm and fuzzy when I see that, right? If I have a premise that I started and I start seeing it other places, that gives me a warm and fuzzy. The reason I'm putting all this stuff out there is because I want people to start looking at these metrics. I've talked to Josh Hermsmeyer about it. And he's like, the more people that talk about air yards, the better, right? So if I had to put myself in a person's shoes, as you said, I cannot see myself becoming indignant over someone else basically executing a similarly themed rant as I had a day earlier because that has happened to me and it's fine. I, I love it. It's proof of my influence. On the other hand, I can see myself in Michael Fabiano's shoes vigorously defending myself if I were accused of this. So if I had to put myself in a person's shoes and, and sort of empathize with their situation, I think I would be a contrarian here picking Fabiano. No, I mean, I mean, that was my gut instinct as well is kind of just what we started talking about is the fact that we're all looking at the same box scores. We're all looking at, you know, the, the same data points that eventually we're going to end up having the same takes as other people, whether we realize it or not. And I, I don't think you can. Well, we're in the minority. I'll tell you that right now. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. 
Is that right? Like, I, I don't know. I feel like, God, that should be so obvious. Like, I don't I don't get that. Oh, no. Idea ownership is a big thing. It's a galvanizing force on social media. Oh, yes. <laughs> and Michael Fabiano is not a sympathetic character. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's not like Matthew Barry is indignant at someone with a thousand followers who's just grinding on their own personal website. Yeah. But that's what's better about it, man. This is what I've been wanting forever. This is it. This is what I've been talking about on my show for years. That we need feuds. We need beefs. If there's trash talk within leagues, why isn't there more trash talk between analysts, between media platforms? I just wish the trash talk was done on the shows, not on Twitter. I don't know. I'm not a big fan of trash talk. My wife said this. My wife said, if there's ever an industry that needs more trash talk, it's fantasy football. How do you guys not get in more fights? Isn't that what you all do in your own leagues? And I was like, yeah, I don't know why. That's a great question. Maybe because some people can't be trusted not to lynch themselves on stream the first time they respond. <laughs> You're analyzing a game that's within another game. That's pretty much the last thing anyone should take seriously. You're, you're not bioethicists. What, what if Fabiano did do this in, uh, he did intentionally steal a take and a, a format that Barry used? That's, that's definitely to the benefit of Michael Fabiano because when Matthew Barry comes out at him, that's just gonna raise Fabiano's profile, right? In the WWE, the heel knows when he's giving the wink and the nod, he's like, I'm going to put you over because at the end of the day, we're all going to win. In wrestling, the two wrestlers are both in on the gag, right? In this case, do we know if if Matthew Barry and Fabiano are, are both in on it? I wish they were. I'd love to think they were. I have a fantasy that they are. That's my fantasy, that they are, uh, that they have this other channel in their DMs. They just have these like, clinking champagne glasses. That's my fantasy. That's my fantasy football fantasy. Yeah, I'm going to steal one of your takes tomorrow, and then we can we can get into a beef on Twitter. How about that? I love it, right? And then we both... Actually, here's the best part of it. It's actually more efficient because then we only need one take. We can both share it. Let's workshop that on the podcast. Yeah, let's figure out what, what take I'm going to steal from you on the show. And then you'll steal it from me, like laying it all out like a script writer for WWE. <laughs> We're not there yet. The, the self-awareness of this, this is a slow process. We're 10 years away from what I just explained, what I just laid out. It requires everyone to kind of take a step back and realize this is all pretty silly what we're doing. I mean, we're, we're entertainers more than anything else. Like, we're analysts, but we're also trying to provide something that's entertaining. That's my Don Quixote. Tilting at windmills. My Don Quixote quest, right? Ten-year quest. We'll see if we get there in ten years. Fingers crossed. And Twitter is the worst venue for conflict. Sometimes a good cutoff for effect, just dismissiveness, that, that needs to stay in the show. <laughs> and you know what I do in those situations? I uh, fade out their audio. <laughs> I've heard that before. I, I can't wait to see how many times it happens to me. You start, they just start getting really quiet. And it's like, no, man, I'm talking now. <laughs> that I have to be the one to pump the brakes. <laughs> on the guy I loved. I'm the one holding the reins on my prized stallion. This is where I find myself with Patrick Mahomes. This is where I'm going to find myself with Marlon Mack soon. It's, I love it. I don't know. I'm not a big fan of trash talk. 
And I love Patrick Mahomes. I love Patrick Mahomes. Get a room. I love his voice. I don't know. I'm not a big fan of trash talk. You're a zero RB and two QB league enthusiast. There's a reason why I love you, Greg. <laughs> I don't know. I'm not a big fan of trash talk. I love you, Greg. <laughs> I love you, Greg. <laughs> I love you, Greg. <laughs> but if we're not going to play in a 32-team fantasy league, why do you care that your roster configuration in any way, shape, or form mimics real-life football? I swear to God, I'll pistol whip the next guy that says shenanigans. And the running back that's dominating the snap share has no hands. Stumps. When a player scores a touchdown on your bench, that's not fun. That's masochism. You mean shenanigans? Waiver wire, waiver wire, waiver wire, waiver wire. That's the second time you've done the podcast equivalent of subtweeting Lamar Miller, just for the record. As many flex positions as you fucking want. I'm on the edge of my seat. And I'm looking at Brandon Powell right now. I'm on the edge of my seat. And he looks awful. I'm on the edge of my seat. Give me more, more. That's what happens with touchdown rates. They inevitably regress, especially when the player isn't good. Think about that, Greg. Think about that. <laughs> Fantasy points. Evil shenanigans. The way Jameis Winston sucked on his fingers in the middle of the football field, you just don't come back from that. I mean, yeah, that, that's what they teach you. With Jameis Winston, he can go to hell. R.I.P. Damn it, Greg. I'm sorry I asked that question. <laughs> it's like point break without parachutes. I'm open to the idea that Nathan Peterman is not the worst quarterback in the NFL. I'm open to the idea. It's like point break without parachutes. Let's go for a joyride on the Pacific Coast Highway, and how about not drive the car off a cliff in the process? It's like Point Break without parachutes. Now, Todd Gurley is the best. Hot take. Let's move on. I don't even want to talk about it. That's what I want you to say, Greg. Let's move on. I don't even want to talk about it. What would have to be on that MRI for them to go out and trade for Carlos fucking Hyde? Spaghetti with marinara at this point. No! What the fuck, Jarvis? Oh, I know what the fuck. You're overrated. That's what the fuck. Yeah, you're gonna you're you're seeing behind the curtain. You're gonna see people don't understand how much editing is involved here. Let's move on. I don't even want to talk about it. Pause it, pull over, get your phone out, and pick up Chris Conley. Put on your four ways. Contrive dichotomy. I did it again! <sighs> yeah, my excitement level for that game is defcon pointer sisters like we're there like it's it's time i'm so excited especially when the player isn't good You mean shenanigans? I'm so excited.